In considering the, the state of things in the world today, you've noticed, I trust, things are not normal. Things are not usual. But in whatever state of things that the world is in, or our own personal lives are in, we as Christians, we must endeavor to think and to react and to live biblically. Why must we so endeavor? Well, if, if we merely follow the crowd of whatever stripe, of whatever color, in whatever area of life, we run the risk of not following the Lord. And maybe a very great risk. What about if we follow our emotions then? If we follow our emotions. Well, the, the emotions are filled with all sorts of sinful behavior. Not necessarily by definition sinful, but when they're exhibited and displayed from a sinner, there's a good chance that there's sin involved in some way. Think of anger, think of fear, think of envy. What about greed? Or the king of them all, pride. Yes, they're sinful. And they're often mixed in. Sometimes it's a complicated mix, so complicated that we ourselves cannot discern what's going on. We can be angry at one thing, but at the back of it, the fuel is human pride. But we'll focus on this. So we just do not have that personal discernment. That can be so. Now, emotions are an indication, but they are a mere indication of something, of a reaction to something. They can point to something, but they can also confuse the issue, and therefore not something to be followed solely. And if we follow politicians, well, we're following man. And then we run the real danger of absolute spiritual compromise. It is therefore imperative, it's therefore a must, shall we say, that we attempt to understand God's will towards us in how we should think, in how we should speak, in how we should react uh, in all ways towards each other, uh, towards people in general, towards those in authority, good authority, bad authority. Because it's not only with regards to the preaching that we should be good Bereans. The noble Bereans, who even checked the preaching of the Apostle Paul to see if it was so, if the Bible really did teach and preach that. We should examine all things, including our complicated motives, according to the Word of God. And this examination must include how we are to behave towards each other, to those in power, informing every part of our lives. Now, the Bible speaks to us upon these and upon many matters in varying contexts. Context is king. Understanding these things in their, their context, because that will explain why the Lord is saying it to whom and how. 
because we will learn differing aspects of doctrine. We'll understand different parts of prophecy. And it's very good that we do not get attached to one verse or to one passage only to the exclusion of the rest of what the Lord would say to us on a particular issue. Because we will become unbalanced in our thoughts and therefore in our deeds. And so we need to listen to what the Bible says in its entirety on on all issues. We need to be systematic theologians, you could say. We have to know the Scriptures and understand what the Scriptures say on various things, that we may know what? That we may know the full counsel, the full advice, the full revelation of God on any particular issue. And so as the Lord is pleased to grant health and strength and wisdom and understanding and opportunity, I would like to take a number of weeks to consider the scriptural response to the present political and social situation. A scriptural response to the present political and social situation. That's not the title of the message today. That's just really a theme that I think for my my own self, for us, it would be good to consider. Let me just say this. I have no fixed agenda and no fixed outcome in my head. I see and read scriptures that without careful thought and study and examination would appear to contradict. And so some people will then play the game of pick and mix or just pick and choose. That verse is what I'll go for and that determines my reaction. No. Let us be nobler than that. Let us be Bereans and understand what the Scriptures say in their entirety. Now, I do have certain thoughts and presumptions based upon my knowledge of the Scriptures, a knowledge which is imperfect. But I, and I trust I can say this, I am just as keen as you are to know the Lord's mind on these things, to understand what the Lord would have us do, what He would have us say, how He would have us to react, and it is a manifold truth. I want to know how I am to submit. I would like to know how I am to resist. I would like to know what is the way of God, because if it's not the way of God, it's the way of man, it's the way of flesh, it's the way of the devil, and I do not want to be a party to that. I do not want to preach man's opinion, most definitely not my opinion. I am prepared to be challenged and have my thoughts changed on this, to be challenged by the Lord's Word. As we examine, for example, the prophet Daniel, the words of Christ, as he challenges challenges us with these truths and other portions of Scripture, and as we go through the Word and try to understand, we will be seeing different facets, different faces of this one gem of truth, as God has revealed it. My knowledge is imperfect. I'm sure yours is as well. And so, as the Lord is pleased to help us, that we will examine uh, these matters carefully, that we will have some understanding and knowledge to inform our personal conscience before the Lord. And we begin today with a foundational sermon, if I might say. It's foundational in this regard. You could call it a spiritual 101. 
and I've entitled the message today, How, How God's Ways Instruct and Comfort. How God's Ways Instruct and Comfort. Well, comfort whom? Us. <laughs> How His Ways Instruct and Comfort Us. And that's what we're examining, especially when we consider verse 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. We're taking most of Psalm 77 together to see how God's ways instruct and comfort us as a, as, a, as a foundation, as an understanding, as we work our way through this. We see firstly the psalmist's own stumbling way, the psalmist's own stumbling way. And you could take away that word psalmist for the, uh, for the, believe, the, for the believers amongst us and put your own name there. My own stumbling way. I'm sure much of what we read about what Asaph, Asaph, whatever, what he says is experienced in the life of the believer or is yet to be experienced in the life of the believer. And we see that in verse 1. We see, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice. I mean, who's speaking these words of anguish? Well, we, we know that from the superscription, from the title. And the title which we read out is part of the Hebrew text. It's part of inspired scripture. Well, it's Asaph. Asaph. And who was Asaph? Who is this person? Well, he is one of King David's chief musicians. A musician of renown. And as you study, there is, there is, there is, there is a number of details of information about who he is. Uh, we're not, but we're not spending our time on Asaph today. Well, say this, he, he played the harp, he played the psaltery, which is sort of like a, a combination between a harp and a guitar. He played the cymbals. He not only played sacred music, he was one of the musicians in the temple. Sorry, he was one of the musicians in the tabernacle. And whether he lived long enough to see the temple is another matter. He not only played sacred music, but he composed sacred music. Twelve of the psalms are by his hand. He, he composed Psalm 50, and he composed Psalms 73, yes, up to in including Psalm 83. And from the contents of the psalms, as you would read through those psalms, you see, well, Asaph is clearly a born-again believer. He's a man who has uh, a, a conscience that is, is soft towards the Lord, his faith is not a faith of facts. His faith is an experienced faith. And he has experienced God's way with him. And he's a great example for us believers here as we look at Psalm 77. But we've seen the person, but there's a personal cry that we see there. It's a troubled cry towards God. He's cried out to God. And what's very exceptional in the first verse of a psalm, and quite often it's not the case, quite often whoever's written the psalm will call out to God in anguish, and it's really only towards the end of the psalm, if not the final verse, that he knows that the Lord has heard his prayer. As an exception here, maybe not the only exception, but as a, a remarkable exception to the, to the standard, he, he confesses that the Lord has heard his prayer, and he gave ear unto me. The Lord has heard my prayer.
And more details of the reasons of his crying to God are given to us in the, in the following verses. Talking about, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, and my soul ran in the night, etc. But you see, this is what he's speaking of in the beginning of the psalm, is that he sought the Lord, but found no peace. But he didn't give up. He carried on seeking the Lord. And now he mentions this saw here, he says, my saw ran in the night and ceased not. And you might think, well, this might be a physical saw, a wound that would not heal, and it was keeping him awake. But I think verse 3 would will show us that this is a spiritual sore. I remembered God and was troubled. It would appear to be a matter of sin, a matter of guilt, a matter of conscience, because when he remembered God, he became troubled. And then verse 4 speaks of him uh, lying awake at night and then eventually being unable to speak anymore. But being unable to pray out loud anymore, there's a, a personal cry here, but there's also personal experience. As a believer, we see verses 5 and 6. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. He's, he's looking back as he's... As he's stopped for a second mulling over his own personal anguish and pain, and he begins to consider his own experience with God. Maybe he's considering here his own conversion. I call to remembrance my song in the night. As many a believer whose heart has been turned to the Lord... Uh, and that their heart thrills with the knowledge of God, and they wake up in the middle of the night, and their heart thrills as they consider that God is their God, and they may break out into song when they consider the Savior, when, when the heart of the newly born-again believer is so fresh, is so tender, so soft, so full of the wonders of God. He, remember, he remembers waking up and praising the Lord. And now he begins to examine himself if he has sinned against God. I commune with my own heart, he says in verse 6, and my spirit made diligent search. And as he's contemplating these things, having uh, mentioned his own personal experience of God and God's saving work and God's mercy and grace as felt in the heart of the believer, he moves on to personal doubt. He's focused on his anguish and his, and his guilt, and he now begins to doubt if he'll ever be forgiven. And we see that in verses uh, 7 uh, to 9. And we look at those in a little bit more detail in the sermon this morning. But he begins, as it were, to, get, to, to, to doubt the very character of God. If he will ever be forgiven, if God will ever for, forgive him, will he be cast off? And as I said, we'll look at that in more detail very shortly. But then we come to verse 10. And here we see there's a point of light that breaks forth. Light. God gives him some illumination here because he realizes, considering all these matters, his doubt, his sore, his confusion, this is my infirmity. This is not the Lord's doing. This is my problem, as it were. 
God did not cause it. And more especially, he sees that the core of his infirmity is what? Unbelief. This is my infirmity. But I will remember the years, I will now, we could say, I will now remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. He's persuaded to remember. He's persuaded to remember and think on God, and he now determines to think how long God has shown strength and kindness and long-suffering and given help to his own people, to each of his people individually and to his people <coughs> as a whole. So now instead of focusing on his problems... He now focuses upon his God. He will now remember the works of God. And this is the great turning point. And notice also, he now starts speaking directly to God. He says, I will remember the works, uh, verse 11, I will remember the works of the Lord. And then he turns. And then he starts praying, if not praising God. Maybe this is part of his song in the night his new song in the night. And he says this, Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. He's no talking about God. He's now talking to God. It's a change. He talks to the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Asaph will remember him. He will, he will meditate on the Lord's doing. He will talk of God's doings in verse 12. And it is this contemplation of God, not of the problem, not of the circumstances, not of his own weakness or his own doubt, but it's, it's his contemplation of God that causes his faith in God to be restored and to grow. And especially as he then moves on and as we move on, to consider the person and the power of God himself in all these things. And so let us now dive into verse 13 and bring in other points as well. Having seen the psalmist's own stumbling way, we see, secondly, his meditation on God's holy way. His meditation on God's holy way. He says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And when you think of the word sanctuary, you might think of the word temple when you hear the word sanctuary. Uh, but this word that's used here, it's, a, it's quite a broad word in the Hebrew. It has the idea of holiness, and it is a place of holiness. A sanctuary is the holy place. A place of holiness But it firstly points to the holiness of God. Thy way of Lord is in holiness is also a, a very valid translation. Is in the holiness. God's own way of being is, is holy. It is holiness. Uh, we think then of the purity of who God is. There's moral perfection... And there's absolute difference towards us and towards all of creation. 
Even where creation was perfect in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God was still holy. God was still different. God was still far above. We know that hymn, far above all. And that's so true. God is far above all. And we've, we've looked at this a couple of times since March, as we've in the adult Bible class and even in the preaching. The holiness of God. But we want to understand something of the holiness of God. We want to understand something of the Godhead. Let us quickly go and look at Jesus Christ. He is the express image of God. The express image of the Father. If we go to Hebrews 7 and verse 26, we are revealed something of Christ as our high priest. And what type of high priest he is, is, and still is for you and me. Listen to him. Listen to me as I read from his word as he describes himself. For such an high priest became us. Became us meaning was fitting for us, was suitable for us, was necessary for us. Was exactly what we needed. It's exactly what we need. He's exactly who we need. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. And when we consider the first three words that are used there, the first three words of description, that he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, this points to our God, our Savior, being absolutely morally holy, morally perfect. There's no dirtiness in him. There's no uh, lie in him. There's no falsity or deceit in Jesus, in the Lord God, at all purer than the purest mountain water. Morally. Moral perfection. Moral holiness. Moral goodness. That's my Jesus. Believe it, that's your Jesus. Pure. Unsullied. Oh, so perfect. A lamb without blemish or spot. And because he is the lamb without blemish or spot, what a sacrificial lamb he made for our sin. Absolutely perfect. It is complete perfection that must be demanded as a sacrifice for complete forgiveness. Consider that for your soul, child of God. Absolute forgiveness because of his absolute moral purity. But those other words that are mentioned there, the phrases in, in Hebrews 7 and verse 26, speak of him being separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. And they reveal the separateness of God. The posh word is the transcendence of God. That he's so different, he's so high and lifted up, he's so separate from creation because he is from everlasting to everlasting God. He is the eternal Jehovah. He is the creating spirit. He's not a created spirit. He's not a created material being. He is the ever-living source of all life. 
He is absolutely perfect in himself. He is perfect love. He is perfect light. He is perfect life. And that's the truth. God is so other than we are, so different. And yet in Jesus Christ, and here is the great wonder, he seeps, he seeks a deep and close and intimate fellowship with sinners, with his own. And he does that through Jesus Christ. He does that in the God-man. In the person of Christ, we see God and man reconciled. In the very being of who Jesus Christ is, God and man, he is reconciliation itself, and he works reconciliation for us to bring sinners to God. But God can come close to us. That's why he says he is a high priest that became us, the high priest we needed. And this high priest sacrificed himself for you and for me out of love, out of pure love, because he is holy and harmless and undefiled. So we see the holiness of God, but we see and understand also when we think of the sanctuary, we think of the holiness of his people. The holiness of his people is considering the godliness of his people because God demands of his people that we be holy. It's the first command, really, in the gospel call, isn't it? Repent. Turn from unholiness. Turn from uncleanness. Turn from the ways of the devil and the ways of the flesh. Turn from them. Come to me. Flee what is wicked and deadly and have fellowship with me. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. The godliness of his people, and he demands that we be godly. 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. It is the demand, it is the desire of God that we flee the devil and sin and we flee to Jesus. And fleeing to Jesus is also fleeing to become more like Jesus. A religious mask is an abomination to God. We must have a truly born-again religious heart. We need to be holy as he is holy. But the, the godliness of his people is also seen and understood in the sanctifying of his people. It says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctifying the making holy of that which is not holy. The dragging, kicking and screaming of every sinful aspect of our heart and character to be in conformity to Jesus Christ. And so the Lord brings tests. The Lord brings trials. The Lord brings temptations. The Lord brings challenges, national, religious, whatever they may be. 
He brings challenges because He has that greater plan that we would be sanctified through them. Because Thy way, O God, even with me and you, is in the sanctuary, is in the sanctifying of our characters. Because there is much to be sanctified. Speaking for myself, there is much to be sanctified. And part of the sanctifying of the people is that we are humbled. We do not get our own way because our own way is not perfect, and that's why we must have God's way, which is in holiness, in sanctifying, in his demands of sanctity, of holiness, because he wants to build a house of holiness. And we are the living stones. The Lord desires to build a holy temple with each born-again believer as a stone. Ye also as lively stones, as living stones, Peter says in this first epistle, chapter 2 and verse 5, are built up as spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we have the sanctity of his house also. And we are his house. Spiritually understood. Spiritually taught. But we also have the sacredness of the approach to him. To approach God. To draw nigh to him because it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Well, how do we meet God in the sanctuary? Well, it's only through a new and sprinkled blood-sprinkled way. We have the approach through Christ. Because of Christ, we are able to approach God in His sanctuary, in the holy place, no longer outside with the profane, with the unholy, with, 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 with the heathen, with the godless. But here is our access to the holy place, a blood-sprinkled path. And it's only on that path that we can approach the Lord. It's only through our holy and, and harmless and undefiled great high priest sacrificed for us. We're sprinkled with his blood and the path, as it were, to the throne of God's grace is sprinkled with blood that we can walk upon it. It has been sanctified. It has made, been made holy. We have been made holy that we may draw nigh unto God. Which speaks of the holy body of Jesus Christ itself, the holy blood of Jesus Christ, the way that is ordained of God to come nigh unto him. Because when we were sinners and outside of God, we were unworthy, which is why it is all of grace, all of undeserved kindness. But even when we have been converted to God, by God, in many ways we remain unworthy. In and of ourselves, in all ways we remain unworthy. We're spiritual pygmies. We fall daily prey to the same bosom sins, and the same weaknesses, the same flaws of character. We don't read the Bible as we should. We don't pray as we should. We're not, being, we're not growing in sanctification as we should. 
There is much to be ashamed of. There is much to feel guilty about. And yet, because of this blood-sprinkled way, we have ever access. We have a boldness given to us. We have the right as the children of God to always come to our Heavenly Father, to enter boldly upon God's way to meet Him in the sanctuary. Is it the sanctuary of us folding our, 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 our hands early in the morning as we wake up and call upon Him? Yes. Is it coming to the Lord's house? Yes. Is in every aspect of life we send up a prayer of emergency? Help me. Is in our times that we, that we might have of, of, of long and deep meditation and heart being warmed? Yes. It's just, it's not just, it is our every approach to God, not by our old and dead way, but by a new and living way, accepted in the beloved. This is what we must hold on to, because the flesh is corrupt, it is rotten. It's full of pride and greed and nastiness and anger. And we must remember this, that if we are the beloved in Christ, we are accepted in the beloved, always accepted. Yes, come and seek that fresh cleansing, knowing that when we confess our sins, that God is righteous and He's just and He's merciful to forgive us our every sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the child whom He has washed down of all the mud of sin then goes out and plays in the mud again. But what a long-suffering and kind Father is when we come back in and we leave our muddy footprints on the floor and then He cleans us, may chasten us, may chastise us, but he cleanses us afresh. Thy sanctuary, O God, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, and that sanctuary is sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've seen the psalmist's own stumbling way and his meditation on God's holy way, but finally we see his understanding of God's supreme way. His understanding of God's supreme way. And if we look at verse 13, it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, and then he turns and he says, who is so great a God as our God? There isn't any other God that exists but the one God. And who is so great a God as our God? The only true and living God. And the greatness of God is revealed in this psalm in so many different ways. Couldn't give it justice, really, as just one point of a sermon. We'll endeavor to look at a number of things that we will then, having built upon something of, of Asaph's understanding of God's supreme way, that we will go away and having learned and understood something which I think is most special. God is firstly, firstly revealed in, in verses 79, 7 to 9 as being faithful, faithful, trustworthy, never going back on his word. What he says he will do his promise, promised, is promised. His word is his bond. He speaks the truth at all times. God is faithful. And yet, and yet what do we see? We see Asaph, Asaph, doubting God in verses 7 to 9. And he, and he doubts God in, in, in six certain ways. And he has these rhetorical questions, that is, questions that are posed to make us think, not necessarily questions to be answered immediately. Here we have those six questions. Verse 7, it says, Will the Lord 
cast off forever. And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? All these questions are bubbling up in the soul of Asaph as, he, as he's, he's worried, he's concerned, he's been focused on himself, he's been focused on his problems, on his weaknesses, on the circumstances. And so he's doubting six things of God. He's doubting God's constant care. He's doubting God's never-ending blessing. He's doubting God's loving kindness. He's doubting God's faithful covenant-keeping. He's doubting God's unconditional favor, His grace. And he's doubting God's tender mercies. Until what happens? He starts to doubt his own doubts about God. People, that's, that's a great doubt to have. That's a great doubt to have, to doubt yourself, to doubt your own doubts. Starts doubting himself. Selah, think on this. And in verse 10, he starts to realize and give an answer. I would suggest that the answer that he can now give as he starts looking away from himself and his own doubts and his own insecurities and starts looking unto the Lord... He can see that his answer to each of those doubts is no, never. God will never, ever stop caring, stop loving, stop being merciful, stop being gracious, stop being kind. He will never, ever do these things. God's care, his blessing, his loving kindness, all these things will never fail towards his people, never, because he said so. If my God says so, it is so. No, rather, these are six aspects of God's own character which declare how faithful he is in all these regards. They declare his abiding faithfulness, keeping his word, being trustworthy, being the God on whom we can rely in everything, in every situation, even though he slay me, even though I am put under terrible temptations and trials. He is faithful. Faithful to his people. Faithful to you and me. Ever faithful. In fact, the second half of the psalm, should we say after verse 13, more than answers these questions as Asaph goes on to consider uh, God's redeeming work. God's saving work, God's delivering work to his people. And a, a number of points throughout history, just as a, a, a tip of the iceberg, merely touches upon the great deliverance at the time of the Exodus, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, bring them across the Red Sea, just as a very hint of the great and powerful redemption of God's people Yes, spiritually from the power and the grip of Satan and death, but also historically from godless, church-destroying rulers. God delivered them. He's faithful. He's faithful. And Christian, your, your knowledge of God's Word... As we see Asaph here, considering his knowledge of God's Word, as he's considering in the book of Exodus and what the Lord did to his people there, and considering throughout uh, the, the days thereafter, 
the, the, the books thereafter and, the, and the, the decades and the centuries thereafter as he reads through the Scriptures. And as we grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures, as we see God's hand, God's fatherly hand, a hand of chastisement, yes, a hand of deliverance, oh yes, and a faithful God in all matters, that must cause your childlike faith in Him to grow. Looking back at the work of God in history, and as Asaph did, and it changed his heart, looking back at the experience of God in his own life. You might say, I'm a, I'm a young believer. I haven't got much experience of God in my life. And look at God's treatment and his care and his love to his people in all 66 books of the Scriptures. He does what he says. And what he says, he does. And so we've seen God's supremacy in his faithfulness, but we also see it in the fact that he is almighty. And we see that in verses 14 and 15. Thou art the God that doest wonders. He can do wonders. He does wonders. He's almighty. This is not some, this is not some religious philosophy that we can hook a few idle thoughts on. This is the living God, God almighty. This is El Shaddai. This is Jehovah Elohim, the ever-existent one. Thou art God that doest wonders. Not, not that did wonders, that doest wonders. The ever-living, faithful God is still almighty. So he is almighty, he performs miracles. Thou art the God that doest wonders. The great miracles of redemptive history that we read of, they are included here. But every miracle in the rebirth, a wonderful miracle, in the redemption of his people, in the, in the supplying the money for the rent and the bills, in supplying all your needs, the miracles of God, the blessings of God, the benefits of God, big and small, but that he is mighty as well. He is mighty. He has mighty miracles, but mighty in his deeds also. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. So here we have a crowd of three million people standing at the shore of the Red Sea, and the army of, of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh himself is coming towards them. And there they have, their, they have their, their archers, they have their war horses, they have their chariots, they have their swords, they have their daggers, and the people are there. They will be mown down like grass before the mower. But God's mighty. He has declared his divine power. He has shown his divine power among his people. And we have seen it. We've seen the great deliverance that he's given uh, throughout the 66 books of Scripture, the promised deliverances that we have that are hinted at in Daniel and in Ezekiel. And we look at Revelation and what the Lord himself says in Matthew 24, that the deliverance is still coming, that he will come on the clouds of his Father 
with the angels of his father on the clouds of glory with the angels of his father to judge the living and the dead and he will do away with all the enemies of God and take us to himself mighty but he's also the Messiah because this is what he says and this is very clear what he says thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people that was a miracle that was the might but it was always displayed in the Messiah the Savior the promised Savior the anointed Savior of God the Christ thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people God has with his arm redeemed you and me so God's supremacy is seen in his faithfulness it's seen in his almightiness it's seen also that he is incomparable he is incomparable he is so as we've considered he is so different but he is the only true and living God these gods of of stone and silver and, and whatever they're not gods they're the imagination of man's heart and if anything there's anything behind them well it's a demon a devil is behind the deceit and the lie that is there and I include the great idol atheism the great idol evolution amongst those idols but you know in this psalm and it's, it's a very uh, exceptional psalm in this way and you wouldn't notice it if you're just looking at the at, at the at the English but in the Hebrew there is an array of words that are used to to name God we just see it as God and God's a good translation but we see the name the, the name of God Elohim is here the name Adonai El a very simple name for God Adon meaning Lord Elion uh, Jah and Ha'il the God all pointing to the ever-present the ever-strong and the ever-merciful Jehovah Jesus my God and, the, and these names they mean many things but they mean three things very briefly that he's alive he's ever-living that he's triune that there's Elohim there is three in one and that he is unchanging and that's what we meet in Psalm 77 we're meeting with the same gracious and righteous and almighty God a same merciful God had revealed himself to Asaph reveals himself to all the believers throughout all of scriptural history and in your own lives you know that this is the same merciful Jehovah that we have to deal with and he's incomparable he's incomparable he's not the nasty duplicitous mean-minded selfish Allah a work of fiction but what a devilish work of fiction and his false prophet now he is merciful gracious and long-suffering and it is the unchanging being of God the unchanging working of God the unchanging attitude of God so we bring that the fact that he's faithful he's unchanging in his word he's almighty he's unchanging in his ability to help and to save and to strengthen until he's until he deliver but he's he's unchanging in his being because he's incomparable he is the one Jehovah Elohim he is the one God and this is the very basis this is the very takeaway message to be understood today in the in the preaching of God's word the very basis of Asaph's comfort 
towards God and from God that we read in this psalm. And what Malachi the prophet says very simply in three, in chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He doesn't change. Asaph has been comforted. We should be comforted as we realize who this God is, our God. Unchanging. And then we, we can consider uh, looking at other matters, the fact that God is also tender. He's tender towards his people. It says here in Psalm 77, and in the last verse he says, Thou ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. By the giver of the law, by the giver of sacrifice. Pointing to Jesus, by the way. But he leads them, leads them like a shepherd. He is tender. He is caring towards his people. Leading them out of the wilderness. Leading you and me out of the wilderness. You see, our strength will run out. Our ability, our knowledge, our understanding, our, our, our abilities in so many ways, they run out. But God's help and ability and strength and power and faithfulness and all these matters that we've considered, they change not. He's ever there for us. He's ever there for us today. We can't see a way out, but God knows the way out. We do not have the strength, but we can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us. In the darkness of the woe, it is the light of deliverance that shines so brightly, and we ought to have our eyes open to see God's way out. And sometimes those, that way out can take a while. It took 70 years of captivity in Babylon before God's timing was fulfilled. It was 400 and plus years for the people to be in Egypt before the Lord draw them, drew them out. It was one night in the den of the lions for Daniel to be delivered. But delivered they were. And so the crucial lesson I want us to take away and to understand is by taking time to read and understand and remember and, and study the whole counsel of God, everything that God says and everything that, how God deals with his people and how he's able and willing to deal with his people, in taking all these historical accounts, these 4,000 years of, of history that we read of in here, and also as we see how God has, has touched our lives and, and worked in our lives, that we will gradually learn and understand this, that God does not change and his strong deliverance is merely waiting around the corner. His tender care of the people, of his people, the people he loves, the people he died for, the people he bled for, the people he lives for, the people he prays for, never fails. We fail, but he never. He never fails. And so we must understand and base upon that these remembered, these contemplated facts, these, these meditated works of God towards his people should encourage us to have more faith in him. He's always coming. He's always coming after us. He's always drawing us back from the precipice. He's always there to help us in spite of us because he's good and he is faithful even when we are not. And it's a reflection upon his ancient dealings with his people that will be experienced in the life of the believer today. We'll be encouraged, we'll be strengthened, we'll be instructed, we'll be comforted 
to remember his mercies and his deliverances for his people on whole and the individual lives of every one of his beloved children. He will answer our prayers. He will deliver us. He will comfort us. He will keep his covenantal promises. He will judge evil. He will lead his people like a flock. So much that we don't just cast our cares, our problems upon him. But believer, we cast ourselves upon him. In the great confusion that we may have in our lives and that is in society today. So let us trust God in his, as he has revealed his character to us as he's revealed his dealings towards us. And then we'll be enabled, as Asaph was, to take our eyes off ourselves, take our eyes off our problems, take our eyes off the situation, and put our hand in the hand of our Heavenly Father, even shutting our eyes because we're so fearful. Say, Father, thou knowest best. And then we'll experience most richly the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Which is a great rewarding in and of itself. (coughs) But is also very pleasing to our God. But without faith, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, and we close with this, it is impossible to please him. Don't we want to please our God? Yes. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. May the Lord bless his precious word to our hearts. May his word strengthen us in this coming time. For Christ's sake, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. Thy way is in a way of holiness. Thy way is in the sanctuary of thy people. Thy way is in the sanctifying of thy people. Thy way, O Lord, is in that holy work of Jesus Christ, that holy blood and that holy sacrifice. Thy way is in the sanctuary, O God, of of meeting with us, of having this time with us today in thy house. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary of meeting personally with us every time we call upon the name of our God. Father, there are difficult things at hand. (coughs) There are concerning powers at play today. We pray, O Lord, that thou will help us to understand and be comforted in spite of these things, but that we may see more of thee, thy character, that we may understand more of thy ways with thy people and be encouraged, be instructed, be comforted. <coughs> Lord, part us with thy blessing. Bring us home in safety. In Jesus' name. Amen.